Welcome to Christ the King this morning. A couple of months ago, I uh, invited uh, someone to church, and uh, they responded, look, I just don't do organized religion. I said, don't worry, we're not that organized. <laughs> uh, uh, but this person expressed a sentiment that is kind of common, uh, that uh, spirituality is fine, but religion, ee, uh, you know, it's all... My own, my own spiritual, devotional life, that's one thing. But to be involved in a church and all you guys do is talk about money and things like that. And by the way, if you're a visitor, you just caught us on a day where we happened to be speaking about our church uh, and our church home. It's a fairly rare occasion, I think. But uh, there are some bad assessment about organized religion. Spirituality, fine. Uh, religion, no thank you. Like, I can be a Christian, but I just really don't want to have a whole lot to do with the church. Ugh, yuck. Uh, and that's a kind of a common, common assessment. Um, I've referenced this before. There's a, uh, uh, a, a poll, I think it was done by Gallup, and they, uh, I guess, five, six years ago now, and the poll was titled The Rise of the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and what it highlighted was the rise of people with no religious affiliation. So there are the people who would say, are you Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, uh, Catholic, whatever? Uh, they would say, no, none of the above. So the rise of the nuns. And as the title suggests, it's a rapidly rising demographic. Like the only, it's something like 33% of, of uh, millennial, the youngest age group uh, that was interviewed, has no religious affiliation. I thought our uh, Bishop Guernsey, a, a bishop of our church, said it well. He said, when I was growing up, and frankly, when I was growing up in the early 80s, everybody had a church they, had, they belonged to, even if they didn't go, right? So in other words, you know, you were a Methodist. You didn't go to Methodist church, but that's what you, you were. Your family was a Methodist, or you were a Catholic. You didn't go to Catholic church, but that's, you, that's where you were. And to have 33% of the population saying nothing, not a Zippo, I have no religious connection whatsoever, is a really uh, startling, isn't it? Um, and we should be sympathetic. Like, there's good reason people have kind of thought, church, no thanks. Uh, you've seen the newspaper as well as I have. Um, in the past few months, especially, have not been banner years. Banner months for the church. I mean, it's, it's kind of a cross-denominational sigh. Like, there's a lot of, we're in the church for a lot of, or in the newspaper for a lot of the wrong reasons. And so, it's for, we should be sympathetic when we hear these kind of sobering statistics. And here, I'm spiritual but not religious, or organized religion, no thanks. Not the church is not for me. Well, we're going to begin a sermon series on the church, and we'll spend the next few weeks in four chapters of this great little letter to a church in Corinth. And we're going to think about why it is we do what we do, and first and foremost, why the church? Why are you here? Why do you give your time? Why do you commit to a body? Why do you, uh, many of you give generously of your finances and your uh, talent? Why the church in the first place? I think what we'll find that, especially in this letter to the first Corinthians, it is a wonderfully clear-eyed look at the church. And if you think the church has problems now, boy, you've not seen anything. Like, it, there's nothing new under the sun. 
And the, we're going to see that this church in Corinth had problems that really make ours seem, well, you know, certainly put it in perspective. But it's not a glass half empty uh, assessment uh, of the church. We're going to find that the apostle, this letter to the church in Corinth written by the apostle Paul is incredibly optimistic, incredibly hopeful about the church, and even insistent that it's necessary. That there's no such thing as solitary religion. That, that from the very beginning, God has placed his followers in community. I mean, think Adam and Eve, not just Adam or Eve. Adam and Eve, God called uh, Abraham as a part of a family. Uh, God called a nation in, in, the, in Israel. And then God called a people. Did you hear in our reading that God called 12 people for what purpose? To be with him, to be with one another. And we're going to find that the church is not an afterthought. It's not some sort of add-on that wouldn't it be nice if you were a part of it. Rather, the church, with all of its faults and all of its foibles, nonetheless is an essential part of faith. Uh, Christian faith exists in community. That Christian faith is propagated by community. That you just, you can't do it by yourself uh, for any number of reasons. So let's jump into our passage for this morning. Uh, well, we will really be just focused on the first handful of verses. And I thought it'd be, as I studied this passage, I thought of breaking it up into the following uh, outline. First, we're going to see uh, the church and its ideal. And you'll notice in the first few verses, we get a kind of a 10,000-foot picture of the church. So the church generally, what's true of the church in Corinth and the church really anywhere, and it's going to sound pretty good. And then I'm just going to touch on the fact that this ideal picture that we have painted in these opening verses really doesn't, it's not that reflected, isn't reflected in the reality of the church. And we were not going to go through the whole letter, obviously. I'll just point out a few points where what we say in this general 10,000 foot kind of the forest is uh, kind of contradicted by the trees. Right? So we're going to look at the church as it really is. And then we just ask, so what? We have the ideal here, first few verses, we have the reality. And the rest of the book, so what? What do we do? And that'll be how we organize our thoughts for this morning. So the passage that I'll be focusing on really is the first handful of verses. Paul introduces himself. He calls himself an apostle. And he writes to the church of God that it is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So I see three points, three sort of 10,000 foot uh, observations, uh, observations from 10,000 feet about the life of the church. Generalities that are true of this church and I think are true of every church. Number one is that the church is one. There is one church, and this church in Corinth is just one part of the larger church. You see, to all called to be saints together with who? Together with all those who in every place. In other words, there's one church. We'll say it, and maybe not in the Apostles' Creed, but on Communion Sundays we say the Nicene Creed. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic churches. How many churches are there? Uno. One. Only one church. It's, uh, and the church in Corinth 
is part of it. In the church in Alexandria, Christ the King is part of the one big church that spans the globe, that spans the, the eons, that spans denominations. There's one church. It's interesting, a part of our denomination, that uh, when our bishop comes and visits us, he will always say something like, I bring you greetings from, and he'll list you know, wherever. I bring you greetings from the larger denomination, from the province, etc. Why? Because his role is to represent the one church. So church is one, just one. It spans denominations. No denomination has the uh, monopoly, no country, no age, one church. So that's the first observation. Second observation is there's a, there's a foundational, the, the, the one church has one foundation. Do you see where I am? Uh, called to be, called together with all those who in every place do what? Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. What's the starting point of the church? What's the starting point of Christian faith? It's those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Now look, you could come up with a much more robust, much more in-depth definition of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But boy, yeah, that's a good starting spot. What do Christians do? Christians are, are those people who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, when do you call on somebody else? Mainly, I call upon people when I need help. Uh, probably the same for you. That's why sometimes we ignore another's phone call. Uh-oh, rector's calling. You probably need something. Uh, so we, we kind of ignore calls because most of us call other people when we need help. There are other reasons to call upon Jesus, but that's a good starting point. When you're in trouble, call on Jesus. That's what Christians do. And I know this is Christianity 101. Like, uh, this is not, I'm not saying anything that you need to go to seminary to figure out, but it's amazing how uh, some of these obvious things we just don't put into practice. You're stressed. Uh, the, the job interview doesn't go well. Your kid is sick. Your parents are sick. Something happens. And we do all sorts of things before we think, oh, shoot. There's one thing that I'm supposed to do. Call upon Jesus. That's what Christians do. It doesn't need to be elaborate. It doesn't need to be long. Just a simple prayer under your breath. Call upon his name. He's there. He wants to listen to you. He wants you to bring your concerns to him. Christians call upon the name of Jesus. That's how they're identified here. To all those who call on the name of Christ. Who do you call on? Do you know, Jesus, who you can call on? Now, what do you make of this phrase that uh, they call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours? That seems to be a little bit of a kind of clunky, both their Lord and ours. What I think is being communicated is that this one church has one Jesus. Like there's not a Jesus for the church in Corinth. There's just one Jesus. He's their Lord and, and our Lord. In our creeds, we'll say we believe in one holy, catholic, apostolic church. Uh, that word apostolic simply means that the Jesus that we claim to believe in is the same Jesus that the apostles wrote about. It's their, their Lord. Uh, the apostles, which Paul identifies himself as, is uh, someone who saw Jesus, who witnessed the resurrection, who heard his teaching. And what they wrote down 
Well, they wrote down what they saw so that we can believe in what they wrote, so that our Lord Jesus can be the same as their Lord Jesus. Does that make sense? So we've thought that if, uh, the church is one. It's really one. It's apostolic. It's rooted. We don't get to make up Jesus who we want him to be. We don't get to take out our red lines and take out those unsavory parts that, you know, we'd rather Jesus. You're not supposed to say that. Uh, you know, we can't do that. We believe in one apostolic faith, right? One Lord. So that's the first uh, two observations about the church. And again, this is just kind of 10,000 feet high. Right? The third observation about the church is its character. It's one. Its foundation is those who call upon the one Lord Jesus. And now it's, it's uh, defined as being holy. Do you see where I am in verse 2, the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with those in every place. So they're called saints. Uh, that's You and me, by the way, are called saints. Uh, most of us would claim to be very undeserving, and certainly this church in Corinth was very undeserving of that title as well. Uh, but they are called holy, and called to, to be holy. Now, holiness, I don't think many of us aspire to that virtue. I don't think, if you had to list your top 10 things that you want to be, my guess is that holiness would be pretty far down on the list. Holy sounds kind of stuffy, boring even. Who wants to be holy? Not me. Uh, recent, or several years ago, I made a discovery about holiness that just helped me think about what holiness could look like. And whenever the Bible speaks of God as a king, and often that's one of the roles he inhabits. Often the Bible describes God as the king. It will often describe him as holy. So, for instance, Isaiah chapter 6. It's a great passage. And the prophet Isaiah begins by saying, The year that the king died, the king, on the, 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 the king of Israel died, I saw the Lord high on his throne. And, and the train of his robe, just the very, just the very hem of his robe, Filled the temple. It's a picture of the royalty, of, of the, uh, the majesty of the Lord. And the angels call to one another. And what do they call? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. In other words, he's not like us. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's royal. Now let's think about how that could apply to holiness. Now, uh, I'm compelled by forces outside myself to watch The Crown. Um, and because I've watched The Crown, I know that there are two branches of the English government. There is the dignified branch and the other branch, which I can't remember. But there's a dignified branch, which uh, is the, uh, the royalty, right? And there's the, the legislative branch that makes the laws and just sort of the nitty gritty of, uh, you know, governing. But the royal branch is there, this the dignified branch. And what are they there for? They're there to remind people, remind humanity of its best. And, and there's certainly some, there's just some things that are not fitting for a king. Why? Because they're royal. They're even holy. Now, I don't take that too far. I'm not suggesting that the royalty inhabits a, a different plane of existence. I'm just saying that that is that's some of how we should think about holiness. You're a son or a daughter of a king. You have a royal bearing. There's some things that are simply beneath your 
dignity. Holiness doesn't mean you're stuffy and stuck up. Holiness means you're a son or daughter of the king. And it's interesting, throughout the book of Corinthians, the apostle Paul is going to correct every sort of behavior and vice that these, this poor church is involved in. And he'll say, uh, very often he'll say, these things that you are doing, you're, they're simply beneath your dignity. Don't you know that you're above this? So here are three marks of the church that we find in this. The generalities of this church, and I think of every church, is one. This body here is, a repre- is part of that one larger, great church. This church is uh, rooted in the fact that we call upon the name of Jesus, but not a Jesus of our own imagining. The Jesus that we call on is the same Jesus that they called on. The Jesus that's revealed to us in the words of the scriptures. And the characteristic of the church is that it's holy, it's set apart, that you and I are sons and daughters of the king. Doesn't that sound great? If you, uh, again, we, we say these creedal statements. I believe in one holy Catholic, meaning universal, one holy apostolic church, the same things that we find in these opening passages. But here's a question for you. You know, we say these creeds I've referenced, and it makes sense to me that we confess our belief in things we cannot see, right? So we begin by saying, I believe in God, which makes sense because I can't see God. We believe, we confess our faith in Jesus, which makes sense to me because I can't see Jesus or the Holy Spirit. All these things I can't see. There's one thing I can see, that is the church. But yet we still say, I believe in the church. Why? Like, you don't need faith to believe in the church. Just look, here we are with the church. I think here's the deal. You don't need faith to believe that there is something that exists that's called the church. Nope. Uh, you, You know, empirical evidence supports that. What you need is faith to believe in the type of church that is described. A church that is one, holy, uh, apostolic. You need faith to believe in that type of church because you know what? The church doesn't look like that. And it never has. It looks divided. Did you see how our passage uh, flows? I mean, the first thing he says after you're one church connected to everybody, I I appeal to you, brothers, verse 10, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree that there be no divisions. The church is holy, and and this, this church is involved in every tawdry behavior that you could think of. You see, the church doesn't often act like or seem like it should. And so we need faith to believe in the church Uh, That is described here. So we've thought about the gap that exists between the church and its ideal and the church as it really is. And there's a difference. And it's a sad difference. I'm not suggesting that we should become, you know, fatalistic. Oh, well, things are always this way. They're never going to get better. But there there is a... because the church is involved, full of human beings, there's an undeniable brokenness to every church. I think it was Billy Graham who said, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. Because as soon as you do, it's not going to be perfect anymore. 
In other words, you need faith to believe. And what I want to impress upon us is that your belief in the church is a matter of faith. It takes faith to believe that the church is one because it appears divided. It takes faith to believe the church is holy because it appears soiled. It takes faith to believe the church is apostolic because it appears wishy-washy. So what should we do? What should we do with the space between the church and its ideal? The church as it really is. So just two things. First is believe in the church. Believe in the church. Flannery O'Connor said it this way. I think the church is the only thing that is going to make the terrible world we are coming let me sort over. I think that the church is the only thing that is going to make the terrible world we are coming to endurable. And the only thing that makes the church endurable is that somehow the body of Christ is there and on that we are fed. Isn't that a great line? The only thing that's going to make this terrible world endurable is the church, and the only thing that makes the church endurable is that somehow it is the body of Christ and that on this we are fed. And the word that sticks out to me is the somehow. Somehow. Despite all its faults and foibles, somehow they're here. Uh, Mark Twain was said that Reports of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. And as we look at the sort of the landscape of the church, we can think, uh-oh, well, it's been a nice run, but looks like it's a curtain call for the church. Don't believe it. The church is not going anywhere. You can believe in the church. We should have confidence in the church. Love the church. I love thy kingdom, Lord, as we, we, we began. A confidence and a love for the church. Yeah, I'm so uh, pleased with our, our vestry's work. I'm so pleased with your generosity and your response. Uh, but, and I'm confident that God will have his hand on, on, on the church. Does that mean that this church will find a home? I don't know. I hope so. See, our confidence does not rest on your generosity or the efforts of the vestry. Look, our confidence in God's goodness for the church rests in God. That he has said he's faithful to the church. And he loves the church. And that's why we can believe in the church. One example from church history, um, uh, back in the 19, 1800s, the first Western missionaries, first Protestant Western, Western missionaries went to China. And they had a, a, a kind of halting success for the first, uh, up until 1930s. And in the 1930s, uh, with the World War II on the horizon, all the Western missionaries uh, were expelled. They were put in internment camps or uh, just shipped out of the country. And there was a very small population of Christians, something like 350,000 Christians, indigenous Christians in China, and the doors shut. There was to be no more Western missionary impact or in influence. And that lasted through a one world war, a civil war, and then an atheistic communistic government. And only in the 1980s did the doors to the church finally open again. And everyone thought that was it. No more. Church is gone. We'll start from square one. There were 350,000 Christians when uh, the, the missionaries left. When they returned in 1980s, they found over 58 million. 
You know, it's the hymn we sung, hymn 351. Even when steeples are falling, crumbled have spires in every land. Like, like, the church is not going anywhere. You can believe in it. You can love it and have confidence in it. I guess the final thing you you and I can do or should do is get involved. The church is messy, there's no doubt about it. The church in Corinth was messy, this church is messy. I hope not as messy as that church, but it's good to be involved in the church. It's good to be involved in a community of men and women that come together and are involved in these regular simple habits of worship and prayer and are committed to one another in a common life. It is a very good and healthy and helpful thing. You and I are never meant to go it alone. And, you know, as you hear, I began referencing these, uh, the rise of the nuns, those with no religious affiliation. You know, that's a pitiable state to have nothing. Um, and it's pitiable for one reason. I mean, there's plenty of people who have good lives without the church, live successful lives without the church. But everyone who marked no religion, none, every one of those people is going to die. And I don't know, who do you call? <laughs> Does your baseball team, your, your softball team come and visit you? Do your workmates? Like, who's, who, who comes? Who, who visits you? Who stands vigil? Who, who brings sugar cookies? Who, wh- every one of those people who have marked none, they're going to face heartache and tragedy, and each one of them are going to face the dark night. And where do you go if you don't have to? I just don't see how people make it on their own. You and I are meant for a community. And the only way to access is, is to get involved with all, all, the, all the challenges that are there, all the difficulties that are there. There is real strength and goodness in the church. We have a sick family member, and it's just been so heartening to see the church uh, surround this uh, this family member, and I'm so grateful. So let me conclude with that, just, I thought, such a helpful reflection from Flannery O'Connor. And she said this again. I think that the church is the only thing that is going to make this terrible world that we are coming to endurable. And the only thing that makes the church endurable is that somehow, just somehow, as we gather together here, as we take communion together, as we sit under his word, as we share a common life together, somehow we become the body of Christ and that on this we are fed. So believe in the church, commit to the church, It's good for you. Plus, God believes in the church and God is committed to the church as well.